If you are just joining us, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be going through this uh, famous teaching of Jesus over 33 weeks, and this is just week seven. And you've heard us say that the Sermon on the Mount is Christianity's answer to the question that humanity asks. How do we flourish? How do we flourish? And throughout this sermon, Jesus shows us what it looks like when the light of the kingdom of God breaks into our everyday lives. It gives us a picture of the good life that's made possible because the king has come. The kingdom is at hand. And should we follow Jesus and walk in his ways, this sermon shows us what that will look like. Over the past several weeks, we've been working through the Beatitudes. That's where the Sermon on the Mount begins. And today, we're only at the sixth Beatitude, which is, Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Now, this Beatitude is about sight. And typically, when you think about sight, you'll think about your eyeballs. You know, a simple fact in life is that we can only see what we can see. Uh, I pretty much have perfect vision. Julia does not. Uh, I can read words, which is a good skill, but I can also read words far away. But Julia, if I'm standing a meter away, I am just an oblong blur to her that she calls husband. You know, but the sixth beatitude, it connects sight, but not with our physical sight. It connects sight with our hearts. If you want to see God, it says it has everything to do with your heart. It has everything to do with that. And this is something you can't escape in Christianity. Jesus wants your whole life. He wants your whole being. He wants the sum of all that you are, your heart. So the heart throughout Scripture, it's, it includes the emotions, but it also includes your mind. It also includes what you do. The heart is the center of who you are, all of your personality, and everything you Think, live, and breathe, and do. It flows out of your heart. And this is the place that Jesus is focused on being Lord. He is going to renew the earth. He is going to renew everything in the cosmos. But it begins by renewing the human heart. And so the point of the beatitude that talks about blessed sight is this. When you see God, you become pure in heart. When you see God, you become pure in heart. So once more, let's read the sixth beatitude. Jesus went up a mountain. He sat down. He opened his mouth. He began teaching. And now he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This week, I want to begin with the promise. The promise is they will see God. Jesus says, You're blessed. When you have purity of heart, but you're blessed not because you have purity of heart. You're blessed because of the promise. That's how the Beatitudes work. The promise is you will see God. So congratulations. But how is this possible? How can we see God? The prophet Moses once said to God, please show me your glory. And if you're not familiar with this, it's a rather shocking response he receives from God. Here's what God says to old Mo. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my, before you my name, the Lord. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you can see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, not so fast. 
Show me your glory. Okay, I guess you can see my back. I'm going to have to cover your eyes. You can't handle it. You can't see me and live. That was God's answer to Moses, one of the holiest prophets that Israel ever knew. And we see this show up again and again in Scripture. You can't see God. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, he describes God this way, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Even the person who saw the craziest visions contained in the Bible, the book of Revelation, the Apostle John wrote this, no one has ever seen God. So there you have it. We cannot see God. And yet, the patriarch Jacob wrestled with a divine messenger all night. And when that bizarre encounter finally ends, here's what Jacob said. I have seen the face of God, and yet my life has been spared. Job, out of the depths of his suffering, said, After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. And now in this beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So there you have it. Bible's full of contradictions. Or, we need to consider what these passages teach us about sight and the nature of seeing. These passages that appear to be contradictions are not contradictions. They're describing different ways of seeing and that how we see can impact whether or not we can or cannot see God. So, at the very least, we can say this. Left to our ordinary sight alone, we cannot see God. Left to our physical sight and what we can perceive in our everyday lives, it is safe to conclude God is nowhere to be found. We can't see him. We can't find a physical entity named God. We can't see it. And it's because on a basic level, our physical sight isn't enough. Uh, in my teens, my parents took me to the promised land or their homeland of South Africa, which Mulder just got back from. South Africa is beautiful. Uh, and while we were there, we went to the Kango Caves in Uchchorn. Is that how you say it, Steve? That. And you, you descend through these series of caverns and caves, and you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the earth. And then you, you see things like this, this remarkable beauty of nature. It's astounding. I can still see it so clearly, even though I was only 14 at the time. And then once you're down there, the tour guide says, all right, lights out. And they shut off all the lights. And as the light slowly disappears, it is so dark that you can put your hand in your face like this and you can't see it. Let alone perceive all of the beauty that still remains around you. Don't get me wrong, you still have a hand. The beauty's still there, but your eyes can't see it. You see, one of the reasons we can't see God is because our natural senses aren't enough. Just as our eyes can't see things in pure darkness, our eyes cannot behold God in pure light. God is spirit, and our eyes are physical. And so we can not always perceive the beauty that surrounds us at all times, the beauty that's sustaining the universe at all times, because we do not have eyes to see God in his pure light. One theologian says this, we can't see God because of our creaturely weakness. He's too great, 
too bright, too glorious. And we could not live if we saw him directly. And that's why throughout history, people have just had glimpses of God. Moses only saw God's back. And although Jacob says, I've seen the face of God, the testimony actually says that he wrestled with the messenger from God. So that's just how he interpreted it. And the reason we can't see God is because we would melt before God. We can't comprehend the incomprehensible, the finite before the infinite, the created before the creator. We can't handle that. But there's also another reason that goes beyond the limits of our senses. Should we have ears to hear what Jesus is saying, we might actually take offense at this beatitude. Before we launched St. Peter's Fireside, uh, for months on end, almost a year uh, consistently, we ran this event called Beer and Theology. Some of you may have gone to it. Uh, some of you have probably heard me with ample illustrations from this event. But essentially, we gathered a bunch of random people uh, in a spectrum of beliefs just to have conversations about faith in a neutral environment. And over the months, I became friends uh, with a regular. His name's Armin. Uh, he's actually the leader of an atheist network. And Armin and I really hit it off. And he said, why don't we start getting coffee? And I said, why? He said, so I can change your mind. I said, that's great, because I would love to change your mind too. Uh, but it turned out, we really also just enjoyed each other's company. And to my surprise, Armin agreed to study the Sermon on the Mount with me, which was great, until we got to this beatitude. So we didn't get very far. And Armin said to me, hold up, if I'm hearing you correctly, Jesus is saying, the reason I don't see God, the reason I don't believe in God, the reason I think that you're a fool for this is because something's wrong with me. I'm at fault. And he really didn't like that implication. But it shows that he actually understood what Jesus was saying. Once again, the heart in the scriptures is not just your emotions. It's your whole person. Your emotions, your will, your intellect, your mind, like your whole being. Everything comes out of the heart. And the consistent message throughout Scripture is that our hearts are in disarray. Our hearts are in disarray. Jeremiah laments this. He writes, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus himself says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And so the message of Scripture is that we lack an internal holiness. We lack something within ourselves. There is something out of order. And then the author of Hebrews says to us, without holiness, no one shall see God. And so the reason that we can't see God in this world is not just that our senses can handle it, can't handle it. It's not just that we don't know how to perceive God. The fundamental problem is also the heart. That should we stand before God as we are, as broken as we are, sinners in the presence of his holiness would fall apart because holiness and sin cannot belong together. And so like the prophet Isaiah, should we stand before the Lord? Should we see him without a mediator? We'll cry out, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a person of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But, on the other hand, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. After everything I've just said, when you think of being pure in heart, you might immediately think of holiness. Anyone? You might immediately think only those who are holy and good and super spiritual, the pure in heart, that's who sees God. That's who gets the reward. And therefore, we need to clean up our act. We need to get ourselves right in order to see God. But that would be a distortion of the beatitude. That's not how these work. And so I want to make this as clear as I can. Pure in heart implies holiness. When you're pure in heart, you will grow in holiness over time. The two are connected, but holiness is secondary. It's the result. It's the outcome. It's not one and the same of being pure in heart. So what is pure in heart? It's easy, right, to imagine shallow caricatures. You might imagine someone who's a bit rigid or a prude. Uh, You might think of someone dressed to the nines in their Sunday best. You might think of your librarian from high school. You might think of someone who abstains from so many good things in life it seems like they can't even enjoy life. Or you might think of someone with a naive innocence who doesn't really know how the world works. But let's put all these caricatures aside. Purity is about richness. Purity is about richness. Hold that in your mind. Purity is about richness. If you order a high-end glass of wine, because you're like that, and it came out cut with water, you'd send it back. You'd be offended. I'm not spending $22 on water wine. Is that how much wine costs? I don't know. If you bought gold and it turned out the gold had been melted down with bronze and mixed together and was impure, you'd cry foul. If you found out your spouse has another person on the side, you would be furious. Why? If we get wine cut with water, or if we mix gold, or if we have an unfaithful spouse, these impurities bother us because the pure substance has been diluted. The pure substance has been mixed with another. It has gone from being a single substance to a divided substance. And so the richness has been compromised. So in the same way, when Jesus speaks of being pure in heart, he's not talking about a perfect heart or a sin-free heart. He's speaking about an undivided heart. A heart that isn't diluted or mixed up or tangled up. A pure heart is an undivided heart. He illustrates this later on the sermon. Jesus takes to task a certain type of religiosity in the Sermon on the Mount. The religious hypocrites. He critiques people who appear religious, who do the right things, who pray, who give, who serve the poor, who fast, who worship, who do all the right activities for all the wrong reasons. They do all of these things because they want approval from others. That's the motive of their hearts, and that is an example of a divided heart. It's not truly doing these things for the sake of God. God says, if you were truly doing these things for me, you would just do them in private. You wouldn't need the affirmation of man. You have an impure heart. And so when you examine your heart, who are you living for? Another way of getting at this is if if I just said, if you could have one thing right now, what would it be? Like if if you had 
one thing and it guaranteed you could have it. Like, you're going to have it. What would it be? Someone say something. What would it be if you could have one thing right now? Financial security. One thing, what would it be? Don't know. I love the honesty. I'd be able to grow a beard. <laughs> but what we have to ask ourselves is, what is that? Are we living for a vision of the good life and that we're pursuing that? Are we living for the praise of others? Is that what's ultimately driving our hearts? What, what's moving us? What are we ultimately trying to attain And so perhaps you don't fall into this trap of external religion where you just do good for the sake of being seen like Jesus critiques. But there's another trap that many of us fall into. We live for an audience of one, but that audience isn't God. It's ourselves. For many of us, it would be simply enough to have a pure heart. And by that, we mean be a good person be true to ourselves, live in alignment with our values. A few years ago, because you guys realized I don't really know how to lead, I took a course at uh, Royal Roads on leadership. And uh, it's okay to laugh at that. (laughs) And one of the assignments was for us as leaders and individuals to reflect upon our core values uh, and and then do a presentation. And I won't forget this because there's this really kind a woman who shared her vision, and her vision was this. I haven't forgotten it because it was that clear. I am good. You are good. We are good. That was her sum total of her value system. I am good. You are good. We are good. Then it was my turn. And I got up with a bag of charcoal, and I, I ripped off the bag, and I poured it out on the floor, and I picked it up, and my hands were all messy, and I said... I value being honest about being a sinner and I value the power of grace in my life and I value loving people out of those two things coming together. There's two different stories. You see, this this woman essentially summed up our cultural moment. Humanity is ultimately good and our destiny is just to realize our goodness. Whatever we do, We're only doing it to be true to ourselves or to feel a sense of goodness. And you might even help others. You might even give a lot of your time and resource away, but it's just an expression of your inherent goodness. But this beatitude says no, no to that story. If we're living for ourselves, if we're seeking just to be true to ourselves, it doesn't mean you've actually arrived at being pure in heart. If you think the end goal of your purity is to be a good person, to thine own self be true, then your heart is still tangled up in a false story and not the story of God, not the story of the gospel, not the story of the kingdom. The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And that one thing is not the approval of others. That one thing is not some goal we might attain. That one thing isn't just living for ourselves and with our values. Rather, David demonstrates this one thing Kierkegaard has in mind in Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord. One thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. That is a pure an undivided heart, a heart that says the one thing, if I could have one thing, would be to be in the presence of God and to behold God's beauty. Or as Jesus puts it, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. That is a pure heart. That is an undivided heart. That is a whole person seeking after the one thing that actually matters. It's a pure heart. But it's by no means a perfect heart. It's still a heart within a person who's poor in spirit. It's still a heart within a person who mourns over the state of their sin. And yet it is a heart within a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And the promise is that that hunger and thirst will be fulfilled. And so we're on the part of the Beatitudes now where Jesus is showing us what it looks like when God fulfills that promise. If you want righteousness, you'll be satisfied. You'll go from being poor in heart to being merciful towards others because you know they're poor in heart too. You'll mourn over sin and the way it's disrupted the world, but what it will lead to in action is purity of heart. You'll begin seeking the one thing that matters because you know the one thing that can heal sin and heal this world is not yourself or any great idea or vision of utopia, but the king being established on his throne and bringing his kingdom. And so Jesus is congratulating those who have that purity of heart, who know their heart still resides within being poor in spirit, but who have a deep desire to see the one thing that matters Congratulations, when you're distilled down, when everything's stripped away, the one thing that remains, if it is a desire to see God, you've arrived, you're blessed, that's the good life. Congratulations are in order, you have a pure heart. It's about our focus, it's about our desire, it's about having an undivided pursuit of God, and it's a countercultural message. You see, our destiny as humans is not to be good as important as that may be. Our destiny is to behold God, to gaze upon God's beauty and to know God. And a pure heart sees this and chases after this. But how do we become pure in heart? How do we gain undivided hearts? And so I want to say this again. It's easy to distort this beatitude, it's easy to think you got to start cleaning up your life, start doing the right things, working hard to become pure and holy in order to see God. I know this beatitude can sound like it's saying you must be pure in heart in order to see God. We always have to remember that the Beatitudes are not entrance requirements into the kingdom. The Beatitudes are describing people who are already in the kingdom, who've already seen God in some sense, where the light of the kingdom's already broken into their lives. You see, when you see God, then you become pure in heart, and then you're motivated by the promise that you'll see God. And so in a weird, paradoxical kind of way, if you want to be pure in heart, first you need to see God. That's the promise. And then you get pure in heart, but then you get the promise. You get to see God. It goes in this circle. But if you want purity of heart, it's not by cleaning up your heart. It's not by trying to become holy. It's by seeing God. And it brings us back to the original tension. Well, how can we see God? How can we see God? Because the sin in our hearts, the limits of our senses stop us from seeing him. 
But there's more to, ni- uh, to sight than just physical vision. If you go out tonight and you leave Vancouver because it ruins everything about the sky and you find somewhere where you can see the stars, an ordinary person just sees them as pinpoints of light in the sky. You, you'll just see the, the, the stars. It'll be beautiful. But if you're an astronomer, you have a totally different experience of the sky. You can name constellations. You can name different stars. You can actually tell me if that's a satellite or a star. You have that capability. If you're a navigator and you have the knowledge of the stars, not only can you name the different stars, but you can actually use the stars to track where you're going on the trackless sea. You can get to your destination. You see, knowledge changes the way we see. Knowledge changes the way we see. You might not see God in this world. You might not even understand how it's possible for us to be talking about seeing God in any sense of the word. You might feel like you're with me down in that dark cave in South Africa. You hear me saying we're surrounded by this beauty of God. We're surrounded by a God who is sustaining the universe each and every moment. A God who is not aloof and distant but actively involved. You hear all of that but all you see is darkness. You don't see it. And so if you want to see, if you want the lights turned on, look to Jesus. Look again and again and again and again. Fix your eyes on him because when you do, you will gain knowledge that changes the way you see your life and see the world. You'll go from having the sight of an ordinary person to the sight of an astronomer or a navigator. You'll move from darkness to light, but why? In his gospel, the Apostle John says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus is God, and he came into the world so we could see God in a way we understand in another human being. What a mystery. Contemplating this, the Apostle Paul wrote, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You might not physically see God. You might have difficulty perceiving how he's present in this world. And the message of the New Testament is look to the face of Jesus. Look at Christ. Then you will see God and then you will know God. But of course, the question is, well, how do we see Jesus now? It sounds always very pious and holy, but how do we actually do this? How do we see Christ? Let me touch on a few ways briefly, especially if you're just exploring faith. Read the scriptures. Start with the gospels. And learn how to read all of scripture in light of Jesus. But start with the gospels. And do this every day. And don't get too ambitious about it. You see, too often I meet people who want to start reading the scriptures. They get overwhelmed by the task. You know, they set a big goal of four chapters a day. I'll get through the whole Bible in a year. And then after a week, they feel like they'll never catch up. And so they stop reading the scriptures. So start simple. But aim for consistency. Every day, crack open a gospel and read just one little episode. Dwell in it richly. Ask questions. Who is this Jesus? What does this tell me about who he is? And over time, you'll grow in your capacity to read bigger and bigger portions. But just start small. Start simple. You don't have to prove anything. 
You're just opening the scriptures to see Jesus, not to be able to say that you've read the entire Bible in a year. You'll see him in the scriptures. You can see him in his word, I promise. But what the gospels and the scriptures show us time and time again is that you don't just have to settle for the written word. You can encounter Jesus. You can pray and he shows up. He'll pour his love into your heart by the power of his spirit. You can pray for an encounter of God's love in such a way that you will be forever changed. You can encounter Christ by the power of his spirit. That is another way you can see him. And one of the fundamental ways you do that actually is through worship with the saints. When we gather here and we sing songs and we gather together and we sing hymns and then we confess our sins and we proclaim forgiveness and we hear the word proclaimed and we preach sermons and we celebrate the sacrament, it is so easy to lose sight of what is actually happening. We're simply trying to facilitate a space where you can see that behind all this humanness lies the glory of God. And you can hear God speak should you have ears to hear. You can see that this whole sermon, if you take away all the parts where I've missed it, you will still hear Christ speaking. In the songs, you can begin to actually hear the truth of God. You can begin to hear that all these things that we're proclaiming are true or not just true abstractly, but true of this universe you abide in and true of you. You can encounter Christ through the power of his spirit and you can see him. That might be a little too out there for you right now. And if you need time to explore that, we get that. And where you can see Christ is in his saints, is in the people sitting around you. That's why we push community groups the way we do. If you want Jesus to become more palpable in your life, allow other Christians to serve you and love you and demonstrate his love. Allow them to make mistakes and ask forgiveness. Lower your expectations a little bit in community and allow yourself to bumble towards Jesus together and you will see him. Not only will Jesus be more palpable, but he'll become more plausible to you. You will see, and I'm confident because I know most of you in this room, you will see that Christ dwells richly in his people. He's changing their lives and it's beautiful. But if none of that's resonating, you don't want to read scripture, you don't want to have an encounter, you're not sure about Christian community. Here's where Jesus promises that you will see him. Go and serve the very least of these. Get out of your comfort zone. Go into an environment of people that you'd rather not see in a given day, the people of society that you'd rather forget about, and serve them. Look them in the eyes, give them a cup of water, give them a meal, a conversation, whatever it may be, but inconvenience yourself, get out of yourself. Because Jesus says, whatever you do to the very least of these, you do unto me. And there's testimony time and time again of meeting Christ in that kind of service. I get it. Some of you are tired. Some of you, you've been wanting to see Jesus and and you're getting cynical. Like, I'm praying the prayers. I'm asking for the encounters. It's not happening and I'm feeling tired and I feel like I can't wait anymore and my message to you is don't give up. Don't give up. Press on. One of my favorite stories in the gospel is uh, the story of the hemorrhaging woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Doctors can't help her and she presses through the crowds. She says, I have to see this Jesus I'm hearing about who can heal me if I even just touch the hem of his robe. She takes that risk 
She sees Jesus and she knows Jesus. I think about the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman who has no right to be in Jewish territory. And yet she comes to Jesus and she says, if you speak the word, you'll heal my daughter. And he says, I can't, I can't do that for you. And she presses on. She says, yes, you can, because I've heard about what you can do. And this surely isn't just good news for Israel. It's good news for the whole world. And Jesus says, of course, I'll heal your daughter. I think about this noble ruler who has a servant he loves. And he travels a distance and he says, Jesus, if you speak the word, he'll be healed. You see, these people, they press through adversity. They press through years of unanswered prayer. They go and they go and they go and they do not give up until they see Jesus and not just see him, but know him for themselves and see him transform their lives. And I just want to speak to you if you're tired of that pursuit. It's worth it. It's worth it. You're going to leave this room this morning and every single message you're going to hear is going to say, it's not worth it. This life is short. Live for yourself. No. The one thing you should ask, the one thing you should seek is to encounter Christ and to know him. And if you're still in the journey of that, you're welcome here. We want to support you. We want to encourage you. If you need help, if you're limping, if you need someone's shoulder to lean into, we're here for that. But I would say press on until you see Christ and you know him and do not give up until that happens and the promises it will. And when we see him, what we actually see is the face of God and all of God's glory in a person. And suddenly we can behold God. We can truly see God because our sin has been dealt with. God came into the world because he knew we could never stand in his holiness. So instead he stood in the place we deserve on the cross. And Jesus says, now I dress you in my righteousness. Now I dress you in my holiness. There is nothing to keep you outside from my presence. The one thing we want isn't always God, but the one thing God always wants is you. And Jesus demonstrates that on the cross. And now, if you place your faith in him, the throne of God doesn't have to be a terrifying thing. It doesn't have to be a thing where you melt. What we're told is we can draw near with confidence and faith and boldness because Christ has shown us it is a throne of grace. And when you know this redemption, when you see all Jesus has done, when it sinks from your head into your heart, the whole of your being, your affections will be inflamed. When you see Jesus, you truly see him. You just want to see him more. You want to see him more in the word. You want to see him more in encounter. You want to see him more in community. You want to see him more with the least. And there you have it. You have a pure heart. Because you got a glimpse. You saw him and God says, Here's a better desire. Chase after it. And you say, yes, because I want to see you more. And holiness follows. Holiness follows. Jesus always meets you as you are, not as you wish you are. You're never too far gone for him. He always meets you as you are, but he never leaves you where you are. Because when you see him, a glimpse of him changes you. Paul puts it like this. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, what Paul is saying is if you want to become holy, look at Jesus. 
Because when you look at him, he transforms you degree by degree, slowly over time, but by the power of his spirit at work, you become like the one you behold. You become more like him. You see, you can spend so much time and energy simply trying to muscle through life rather than opening your hands, beholding God and saying, change me, Lord. Let me get a glimpse of you that I might actually become like you. And he says, here's my spirit. I'll do the work in you. Don't get me wrong. The scriptures over and over again say you should put in the effort. Make every effort to do what Jesus says, but when you fall short, when you can't, it's okay because the power of his spirit at work in you can. Friends, if I don't get an amen, I'm just going to keep going. Here's what I want you to take away. Your destiny is not to be a good human. Your destiny is to see God, to gaze upon his beauty, and to become like him. A human fully alive is a human beholding the face of God and becoming like him, and that's the invitation of Jesus. Look at him, get a glimpse, a taste, a small sight of him, and a pure heart will follow. You will find that one desire when you're distilled down. You might not have a perfect heart, you might still have a broken heart, but you can find that one thing, that undivided heart that says, if I could have anything in this world, give me Jesus.